This podcast contains adult themes and may be disturbing to some listeners. Discretion is advised. Welcome to Crime Scholar. I'm Harris Brown, and this episode is titled Oscar Zeta Acosta, Fear, Loathing, and the Disappearance of a Brown Buffalo. Zeta Acosta was a countercultural activist, attorney, and author who has taken on almost mythological proportions as a folk hero and legend in the decades following his mysterious disappearance and probable death in 1974 off the coast of Mexico. His status as a flamboyant Chicano lawyer for the people had him rubbing shoulders with prominent civil rights leaders such as Dolores Huerta and Harry Gamboa Jr., but it was his excesses in food, drink, and drugs that carved his immortal image as Dr. Gonzo, the sidekick to countercultural writer Hunter S. Thompson in his book turned cult film classic Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. It was also these excesses that made his sudden vanishing no real surprise to those who knew him, even as rumors proliferated about his involvement with drug runners, gun runners, revolutionary guerrillas, as well as a potential target of the FBI. Join me today for the unsolved mystery of the life and disappearance of a self-titled brown buffalo, Oscar Zeta Acosta. I'm excited to announce that Crime Scholar Podcast is going to be attending the True Crime Podcast Festival on August 26th through 28th in Dallas, Texas. The festival is specifically designed around your desire to mingle, interact, and have casual conversations with the podcasters you listen to regularly. There will also be panel discussions and live episodes you can't hear anywhere else. Go to the website truecrimepodcastfestival.com to find information on tickets and the hotel. Prices do go up the closer we get to the event, so you won't want to wait. I'll see you at the True Crime Podcast Festival. This episode is dedicated to OSB Photography, Little Nikki 666, and Boston Crime Addict, who left me five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. Thank you. And to Professor Philip Serrato, who directed my master's thesis and first introduced me to the writings and the intrigue of Zeta the Brown Buffalo, the focus of today's episode. Oscar Acosta was a black-haired, brown-eyed baby at his birth on April 8, 1935 in El Paso, Texas, USA. He was the third child of six, but his eldest sibling died in infancy. His mother, Juana Fierro, is listed as 19 years old and a homemaker on Oscar's birth certificate, although writer Elon Stevens claims she was about 21 at Oscar's birth. She was of Mexican ethnicity and was born in El Paso. Her husband, Oscar's father, Manuel Juan Acosta, was 22. His occupation is listed rather derisively on the birth certificate as a grocery delivery quote-unquote boy instead of delivery man or delivery person. Manuel was tall, thin, 
and sported a clipped mustache at one point in his younger years. He was born in Durango, Mexico, and his highest level of education was in third grade. He became a U.S. citizen and served in the Navy during World War II, later becoming a custodian. Despite this background, as well as because of it, Oscar's parents were hypervigilant about attempting to fit into white society. Manuel discouraged his children from speaking Spanish, a suppression of culture that Oscar would resent for the rest of his life. Juana, who preferred to be called Ginny, denounced any breach of etiquette as Indio behavior, a derogatory reference to Native Americans or darker-skinned Mexicans that is sometimes used to mean uncivilized. She would utilize this term when she complained about the neighbors playing music too late, or, as Oscar later remembered, when his father would, quote, get drunk and accuse her of being addicted to aspirin, unquote. Juana's daughter Anita would later say of her mother, she hated being Mexican. It's important to know that Manuel and Juana's cultural attitudes were shaped by the unmalleable, largely homogenous American society of the early to mid-20th century. Many Mexican-American and other Latin American parents of this era shared similar viewpoints and concerns for their children. They would have been aware of, and possibly even personally affected by, the Mexican repatriation that took place between 1929 and 1936, which was a mass deportation that has also been called a type of ethnic cleansing. Between half a million and two million U.S. residents, an estimated 60% of which were birthright American citizens, were deported to Mexico during those seven years. People were targeted based on how they looked, their skin color, and the communities in which they lived. Thus, it was very important to parents like Manuel and Juana not to call attention to themselves. They would have made sure their yard looked like everyone else's, that they dressed like the whites in their community, that they tried to avoid getting tanned by the sun, and that they and their children spoke only English, at least in public. It would have been, and still is for some, a very stressful and identity-erasing way to live. Oscar would indeed later claim that his father forbade him from learning Spanish. His lack of expertise with the language seems to be borne out by biographer Stavens' readings of the massive amounts of Oscar's unpublished writing that still exists. Oscar often misspells, misuses, or seems completely unfamiliar with some of the language, although his sister, son, and friend-slash-frenemy writer Hunter S. Thompson all remembered him as fluent. Manuel was the undisputed head of the family. Oscar referred to him at times as the captain, or even as a dictator, but he also seemed to have loved and respected him. Manuel's urging of Oscar to be competitive and to argue with him to challenge his authority also softens the portrait of him as an oppressive figure. Like many fathers of the era, however, Manuel also instilled in his sons a sense of hyper-masculinity, or as Oscar called it, quote, conspiring to make men out of two innocent Mexican boys. But Oscar also loved movies and soon began to identify with tough guy characters acted out by James Cagney, Humphrey Bogart, and Edward G. Robinson. Juana, from a working-class family, was a typically frugal American woman during and after the Great Depression, making dresses, shirts, and curtains out of patterned cotton flower sacks. She was a talented singer, and Oscar inherited her love of music. He learned the clarinet, the saxophone, and guitar, and was always partial to jazz. But Oscar also described his mother as quote-unquote crazy, 
A woman given to constantly drinking black coffee, eating mostly oranges and aspirin, and beating her children with everything from belts to rubber hoses. Apparently, the alleged abuse she inflicted upon them may have been triggered by the drafting of her husband into the U.S. Navy during World War II. Oscar's sister described their mother as having, quote-unquote, psychotic episodes, and recalls a story circulated in the family about Juana once chasing Oscar and their brother Roberto into a cornfield with an ice hook. Anita confirms that alcohol, drug, and psychiatric issues ran in the family. In 1940, when Oscar was five years old, he and his family moved to the small rural town of Riverbank, California, which is now part of Modesto in California's Central Valley. This is one of the most important agricultural areas in the United States, and migrant labor is essential to its economy. The Acostas bought two acres of land and planted corn, tomatoes, and chiles. Juana got a job in a cannery. Oscar also worked as a child, picking peaches. From an early age, Oscar recognized the duality of being a Mexican-American. Because of Manuel and Juana's strict edicts about denying their ethnic heritage, Oscar never felt that he completely belonged with either Latinos or whites, the only two demographics in Riverbank. He always felt out of place and described himself as being from the wrong side of the tracks. In truth, both sides of the tracks felt wrong to Oscar. He was forbidden from using the public swimming pool, which was reserved for white children only. At home, he would sometimes stare at himself in the mirror, as if trying to decipher who he was. Despite this, he joined the Boy Scouts and was generally a good student. He also began attending a Catholic church, although his family were non-practicing Catholics. The other local Mexican-American boys wanted to fight him, because of the natty short pants and high-topped black leather shoes in which his mother dressed him, and the white sons of former Oklahoma farmers wanted to fight him because he wasn't white. Oscar usually did not win these fights, but he did become quite athletic in high school. His many talents were on display during these years. He was chosen for the varsity football team and also joined the boxing team. He seems to have become rather popular. He was voted class president in his junior year. He also served as class representative for two years, as a YMCA chairman, and was on his high school's judicial committee, an early sign of his interest in law. Yet at the same time, he began to abuse alcohol while still in high school, and at just 18 years old, developed his first ulcer. His high school freshman report card shows A's in music and algebra, a C plus in chemistry, and a C in English. His teachers reported him as, quote, clean and neat, his desk is in order, he uses the English language well, is amiable, decent, gracious, and a good sport, but didn't always obey orders promptly, and at times even failed to follow directions, unquote. Despite the averageness of his English grade of record, Oscar's many ambitions included becoming a writer. From elementary school through high school and beyond, Oscar was physically attracted to classmates who were white. In his first published novel, a partially fictionalized account of his life called The Autobiography of a Brown Buffalo, he claimed that an early love humiliated him by telling a teacher that he smelled bad, an accusation that Oscar took as racially motivated. In high school in 1951, he fell in love with a blonde, blue-eyed girl three years his junior named Alice Joy, who attended the local Baptist church. Oscar recounts how Alice once told him, quote, 
Daddy says some Catholics don't believe in Jesus. To which Oscar blithely replied, You can tell him this one does. He's my favorite saint. Despite their many differences, Oscar was smitten. He campaigned to win Alice the title of Oracle Queen in some sort of beauty pageant. The night that Alice was crowned, Oscar triumphantly drove her home. Waiting for them there were both sets of parents and the local chief of police. There was an unspoken, unofficial rule in their community that Latino boys did not date white girls, and Alice's parents were strong supporters of this stance. Her stepfather apparently hated Mexicans. The police chief warned Oscar that if he didn't, quote-unquote, leave her alone, he would end up in juvenile hall. Oscar cautiously backed off, and ironically, or so he claimed, Alice soon married a Catholic Italian whose skin was just as brown as Oscar's. Heartbroken, and in another ironic turn, Oscar turned to Alice's religion in an attempt to get over her. While still in high school, he was very quickly elected president of the Young People's Club of the local Baptist church. He managed to convert every member of his family to the Baptist faith, except for his older brother Bob. Despite receiving a music scholarship at the University of Southern California, Oscar instead immediately enlisted in the Air Force after graduating from high school in 1952. He was only 17 years old. We may surmise that this was around the time he discovered that Alice was marrying someone else. He was shipped to an airfield in Panama, and he was still able to use some of his musical talent by playing the clarinet in the 573rd Air Force Band. Once in Panama, he straightaway joined the First Southern Baptist Church that had been set up in the Balboa District of Panama City. He threw himself entirely into the church and helped build a mission in Chilibre, a tiny village of Jamaicans and Panamanians. He also became a missionary to an indigenous tribe called the San Blas and a Baptist minister to an actual leper colony. The Southern Baptists back in the States were so impressed that they sent money to Panama to have a large church built for him to preside over. Oscar apparently became known as the Mexican Billy Graham. He stayed in Panama for about two years. Around six months before reassignment, he began to question his own faith. He later called this a sort of nervous breakdown and explained, I realized I was going crazy, so I made a last, final study to see if what I was teaching was true. I made a study of the Gospels, and on one side of the page, I put the things I felt good about, and on the other, the things I felt bad about in comparing the life of Jesus. Within three months, that bad side was about 20 times heavier than the good side, so I no longer believed in him. That caused the second big trauma of my life. Here I didn't believe in him, and I had a hundred people believing in me in my congregation, I had Indians, Panamanians, servicemen of all races. So for three months, I had to go on preaching and teaching shit that I didn't believe. In 1956, Oscar was honorably discharged from the military. The breakdown of his religious beliefs led him to attempt suicide while in New Orleans, Louisiana. He returned home to Riverbank, California, began dating a number of women, and attending community college at Modesto Junior College although his grades were lower than in high school. In 1956, he met and married Betty Daves in San Francisco, California. Betty was an occupational therapist at a hospital in Modesto, California. She provided Oscar with stability, guidance, and the ability to be a good listener when he needed to vent, 
even after their eventual divorce. Like Alice, Betty was a wasp, that's white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. They lived briefly with her parents in St. Louis, Missouri, despite the fact that her father was prejudiced against Latinos, and separated numerous times because of Oscar's irrational jealousy, temper, and wandering eye. Inevitably, after he'd been away a bit, he would contact her, proclaiming his love and asking for money, and the cycle would start again. In late 1957, Betty and Oscar's parents convinced him to seek psychiatric treatment, and he would spend the next decade off and on in therapy. By writer Elon Stavins' account, he was using hard drugs while trying to hide his addiction from Betty. He would also get drunk and stay out all night, which led to his inability to hold down a job. Oscar could be charming, however, and once persuaded a chemical company to hire him as a junior chemist, even though he had no experience in the field. He also took lower-paying jobs, including one as a dishwasher and another as a copyboy for the San Francisco Examiner newspaper. But his periods of employment never lasted very long in this era of his life. On October 7, 1959, their son, Marco Federico Manuel, was born in San Francisco, California. Oscar was 24. Later that month, he suffered a nervous breakdown and vanished, leaving Betty and Marco behind. He later sent postcards and telegrams, explaining that he was trying to find his quote-unquote identity. In late 1959 or early 1960, he was placed in the psychiatric unit at the San Francisco County General Hospital. In May of 1960, his doctor wrote Betty that Oscar had responded successfully to treatment and had become a more stable, tolerant, and mature person. It's entirely possible that Oscar had stabilized during this period of time, or that he had successfully charmed his doctor into believing that he had done so. Marco Acosta has told Stevens that Oscar suffered a stroke sometime in the 1950s. It would probably have to have been between 1956, after his military discharge, and 1959, which would put Oscar between 21 and 24 years old, an incredibly young age for a stroke. Around this time, Oscar began writing a great deal as he transferred from community college to San Francisco State University. He had always liked to read, but now he was beginning to think of his own potential as an author. He began sending publishers manuscripts of short stories. They were always rejected, but Oscar jovially told Betty, It doesn't matter. One day they'll beg for it. In early 1963, he submitted a finished novel he titled My Cart for My Casket which has been described as a Romeo and Juliet-type narrative between a Chicano and an Oki, short for someone who hails from the state of Oklahoma. This was also ejected. Around 1962, Oscar received a bachelor's degree from San Francisco State and was accepted to San Francisco Law School. Oscar and Betty divorced in 1963 after about seven years of marriage. Once the divorce was final, Oscar and Betty became friends, with Oscar often confiding in her. In 1965, Oscar received his law degree and passed the California State Bar Exam in June 1966, enabling him to become a practicing attorney. He proudly showed his parents his bar exam certification. He decided to become a legal aid attorney, helping underprivileged communities in Oakland, California, with cases involving divorces, bankruptcies, evictions, and temporary restraining orders. 1960s counterculture peaked in California in 1967, 
Oscar, as a product of his time and place, became very interested in psychedelic drugs like LSD and was convinced they helped unlock his creativity. And like many young Americans of the era, he seems to have found inspiration in Jack Kerouac's semi-autobiographical novel On the Road. Published in 1957, it depicts Kerouac and his friends dropping out of society to travel somewhat aimlessly around the United States. And in 1967, Oscar borrowed as much money as he could and set off on his own trip. He first drove all the way to Ketchum, Idaho, the site of American author Ernest Hemingway's remains. He sat beside Hemingway's tombstone for so long that he fell asleep there. That same year, Oscar met the writer and journalist Hunter S. Thompson, who had just attained fame with the publication of his book, Hell's Angels, The Strange and Terrible Saga of the Outlaw Motorcycle Gangs. Hunter was, at the time, in hiding from the Hell's Angels for his honest and open reporting about their illicit activities. Oscar and Hunter struck up a years-long written correspondence. In 1968, Oscar moved to Los Angeles, burnt out by his exhaustive and mostly pro bono work on behalf of the poor and indigent. The nightly news reported on story after story of police clashes with minority groups of citizens and of quote-unquote uprisings of young, energized political factions. A new Chicano underground newspaper called La Raza resonated with Oscar on a level he had never before experienced. Through La Raza and new Chicano friends in Southern California, he heard about what was then called the 1968 Eastside Blowouts. The Eastside Blowouts, also known as the East LA Walkouts, was a protest organized by students at Wilson High School, Roosevelt High School, and five other secondary schools mostly located in East LA, which was overseen by the Los Angeles Unified School District. This is the same school district that I attended from kindergarten through ninth grade, and it's personal anecdote time. When I started first grade, my African-American teacher, hi Miss Woods, called in my great-grandfather for a conference, recommending that I skip the first grade and progress to second grade a year early. My granddad agreed, and the recommendation was forwarded to the school principal for approval. Now, it may or may not be relevant that my last name at the time was Rodriguez, or that my teacher was African-American, but in any case, the school board immediately shut down my teacher's petition with the super legitimate and exquisitely detailed reasoning of, we don't do that anymore, meaning that there was a sudden moratorium on allowing students to skip a grade that just happened to occur right around the time this little Mexican girl was excelling in school. Hmm. This was the very first incident in a series of injustices that prevented me from getting ahead in life. If I had been able to graduate high school at age 16, as this would have allowed me to do, the opportunities I could have experienced would have been life-changing. During the first week of March 1968, an estimated 15,000 to 20,000 students walked out of seven Los Angeles high schools, whose populations were 75% Latino. They were protesting poor educational conditions and inequalities, including getting beaten with paddles for speaking Spanish in school. Their demands included the removal of teachers and administrators for prejudice against Latino students, the implementation of a Citizens Review Board, bilingual education, amended textbooks to include Mexican-American history, 
training and hiring of Latino teachers, and expansions of industrial arts programs and library facilities. Thirteen of the student organizers were charged with felony conspiracy of disruption, with potential sentences ranging from 45 to 66 years in prison, much more than most murder convictions. They became known as the East L.A. 13. These political organizers included famed Chicanos Harry Gamboa Jr., Vicky Castro, Montezuma Esparza, Carlos Munoz Jr., and Carlos R. Moreno, who all went on to notable careers in the art and film industries, local education, and the justice system. Among those who voiced support for the protesters were Senator Robert Kennedy and union organizer Cesar Chavez. Oscar participated in the protests and later became chief counsel representing the East LA 13. What he lacked in trial experience, he made up for in flamboyance. He was an imposing figure, standing six feet, one inch tall. He would show up to court wearing loud, colorful, psychedelic print ties and carrying a flowered attache case with the word Zeta printed on it. This was the first time he publicly adapted that name for himself. In his closing argument, he recited the lyrics of a Bob Dylan song. He had business cards printed up that listed his profession as a quote-unquote Chicano lawyer and included an image of the Aztec god of war, Huitzilopochtli. Oscar became known for his unconventional legal strategies that exposed exclusion and prejudices within the system. In one prominent example, Oscar challenged the practice of having a grand jury determine the charges against the East LA 13. In a legal motion, he pointed out that over a 10-year period, in the courtrooms of 129 judges, not a single Mexican-American grand juror had ever been appointed in Los Angeles, the U.S. city with the highest Mexican-American population. Although this is a startling statistic and seems like a compelling point, the motion was denied. Even after Oscar personally questioned 109 judges, one by one, under oath, and even after many of them shockingly claimed that they had never come across a Mexican-American who was qualified to sit on a grand jury, his motion to indict the grand jury system itself was denied. Despite this setback with Oscar's assistance, all charges against the protest organizers were eventually dropped. The following year, in 1969, Oscar took on another high-profile case, the defense of six men known as the Biltmore Six, who were accused of multiple arson attempts at the Biltmore Hotel in Los Angeles during a speech by then-California Governor Ronald Reagan. But as always, Oscar never quite fit in, despite finding his niche in the legal profession. Many of the activists on the ground in L.A. viewed him as part of the bourgeoisie because of his education and his tendency to overshadow others with his compelling presence in front of the TV cameras. Oscar was such an excellent public speaker and incredibly charismatic. At the same time, he was increasingly discouraged by his inability to single-handedly reform or bring down the existing power structures. He tried to buoy his self-esteem by reinventing himself. It makes sense that around this time, Oscar chose a new name for himself. He had previously sometimes called himself Brown Buffalo, which references his skin color, the weight he had gained, and the extinction of a native species after being relentlessly hunted and killed by white settlers. 
It suited him perfectly. It was a name he would pass on to the larger Chicano community, one he saw as increasingly hunted down and exterminated. Inspired by the classic 1959 Mexican film, The Soldiers of Pancho Villa, he began calling himself El General, which referenced a character in the film, General Zeta. As a side note, it's a movie well worth checking out, if only for the triple glamorous star power of Latina actors Maria Felix, Dolores Del Rio, and Flor Celeste in bright Technicolor. The character General Zeta is an amalgam of Mexican revolutionaries Emiliano Zapata and Pancho Villa. This is where Oscar borrowed his self-assigned middle name. Henceforth, he would always identify himself as Oscar Zeta Acosta, or singularly Zeta, often signing correspondence with simply a large, bold Z. These Mexican legends were the types of bold, history-making guerrilla fighters and land reformers that Oscar had recently realized he wanted to be. It piqued his imagination. One of his biographers, Stavins, discovered a passage in Oscar's unpublished writing that reads, Call me Zeta. It is a name of historical proportion, a name to be reckoned with. In early 1969, Oscar borrowed his parents' Cadillac and drove it to Mexico to marry his second wife, Socorro Anguiniga. Socorro, a student at UCLA, the University of California, Los Angeles, was originally from Michoacan, Mexico, from an upper middle-class family. She and Oscar met at a Chicano community meeting. Socorro was a busy woman. On top of attending college, she was also a paralegal. This career in the law field enabled her, like Oscar, to form connections among Chicano activist leadership. While Oscar romanticized his first wife for her conventional, unattainable whiteness, he now exoticized his second wife by referring to her as an indigenous princess. That summer, Oscar returned to Mexico for a three-month trip with his son Marco, now nine and a half years old, as well as with a friend who would later briefly serve as his bodyguard. Back in Los Angeles, he continued to offer his legal services to the indigent and Chicano activists, usually free of charge, and thus suffered financially. He became increasingly involved in activist causes on behalf of the poor, as well as people of color. He brushed shoulders with the Brown Berets, a Chicano activist group akin to and aligned with the Black Panthers. Oscar had entered a new stage of his life. No longer the clean-cut, earnest student with school spirit or the missionary preacher, he was now a rebel outlaw. One friend claimed that Oscar once presented Socorro with a Ford Mustang, then told her they'd have to get out of town right away because the car was stolen. Hunter S. Thompson told another story about Oscar setting fire to the front lawn of a judge who had held him in contempt of court. Hunter related how Oscar reveled in the arson, like a teenager who has just pulled off a successful toilet papering. Did you see his face? That corrupt old fool. I know he recognized me, but he'll never admit it. No officer of the court was at a judge's front yard on fire. The whole system would break down if lawyers could get away with crazy shit like this. Other associates remember Oscar using LSD and mescaline, even carrying drugs in his briefcase into the courtroom. In 1970, a now extinct Chicano magazine called Consafos published a short story of Oscar's called Perla is a Pig. It was his only piece of short fiction ever published, and was originally a chapter in his unpublished novel. 
It's about an old man in Mexico who is the subject of curiosity and wild rumors because of his light skin, thus featuring two of Oscar's most contemplated subjects, racial aesthetics and social objection. The same year, Oscar entered an unlikely political race in a bid to become sheriff of Los Angeles County. Long before the Black Lives Matter movement brought attention to police brutality against African Americans, a killing spree of Latinos was occurring in Los Angeles by sheriff's deputies, with significantly less attention. In fact, it is difficult to even find any mention of this violent history online, even though Latinos also marched and protested these deaths at the time. The most well-known victim of deadly force at the hands of the L.A. Sheriff's Office was former Los Angeles Times investigative journalist Ruben Salazar in 1970. Salazar, a U.S. veteran and college graduate, was reporting on the National Chicano Moratorium March in August 1970 in his professional capacity as news director for the Spanish-language TV station KMEX. This was a peaceful rally of over 20,000 Mexican-Americans to protest the Vietnam War, one of many such protests in the U.S. at the time. Salazar, who was attempting to take a break from the noise and summer heat by sipping a beer in a nearby bar, was struck in the head and immediately killed by a deputy who shot a tear gas round directly into the quiet establishment. Disturbing information came to light in the wake of Ruben Salazar's death. Why did the sheriff's deputy choose to fire into a quiet bar where nothing was happening? There was speculation then that Salazar was a target. The FBI had opened a file on him years earlier after he spoke about the U.S. Army somehow losing his application for U.S. citizenship. Then there was his apparent sympathies toward the Chicano movement and draft protesters, as well as articles he'd written about the treatment of jail inmates, allegations of police planting evidence against Latinos in order to arrest them, and, just a month earlier, his news investigation into the shooting of two undocumented, unarmed Mexican immigrants by Los Angeles police. Due to Salazar's journalistic curiosity, law enforcement thus viewed him as not only an inconvenience, but an enemy. Viewing the disproportionate arrest and violence toward Latinos, even prior to the killing of Ruben Salazar, with rising disgust, Oscar decided to run for sheriff in the 1970 election. Initially viewed by some as a sort of joke, his campaign gained surprising traction and the support of some prominent local residents, including actor Anthony Quinn and piano prodigy Liberace. The stated goal of Oscar's campaign was to dissolve the sheriff's department itself, or, barring that, to demilitarize the police. In other words, he was running for sheriff in order to cripple his own department, similar to some of today's neoconservatives who run for political office or school boards just so that they can figuratively burn down the institutions that they loathe. Oscar came in a distant second, with 119,063 votes, to the incumbent Peter Pitches, who easily won with 1,407,919 votes. Sheriff Pitches is perhaps today best known for lending his name to the Pitches Men's Detention Center. This is a sizable men's jail that I visited two or three times, located on a ranch-like piece of land in northwestern Los Angeles. It used to be known as Wayside, short for Wayside Honor Rancho. If you've ever heard of a Pitches motion, this is also named after Sheriff Pitches. 
Such a motion is used to access law enforcement officers' personnel files in cases of alleged excessive force or character flaws to find out if they have a history of such incidents. In case you are wondering, Pitches was against making such officer or deputy histories available. Following the law enforcement extrajudicial killing of Ruben Salazar, Oscar asked his friend Hunter S. Thompson to write an article about it. Hunter Thompson did so, and the article, titled Strange Rumblings in Atlan, was published in Rolling Stone magazine in 1971. In it, while concluding that the sheriff's deputies probably did not intend to murder Salazar, Hunter also cast doubt upon law enforcement's justifications for their unprovoked violence. While Hunter Thompson's fame helped draw attention to Salazar and police aggression against Latinos in 1970s Los Angeles, it also caused a problem for Oscar, whom Hunter cites as a source in his article. Some Chicano activists viewed Oscar and Hunter's friendship with suspicion. They were furious that he'd aligned himself with a white outsider who represented the establishment and confided in him. He told a confidant that militants once showed up outside of his house with weapons, shouting, La Raza! But that wasn't the extent of Oscar's worries. He told Hunter he believed that his telephone was bugged, that the district attorney was quote-unquote out to get him, and that his car was being tailed. Shortly after voicing these concerns, Oscar was pulled over one night and descended upon by LAPD officers, the LA Sheriff's Department, and federal agents from the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, lending credence to his paranoia. They promptly arrested him and charged him with possession of 47 amphetamine tablets, claiming he had tossed a crumpled cigarette package that contained the tablets out of the car after realizing he was being pulled over. Oscar was released on bail during the two-week trial, a period of time in his life in which he was depressed and yet again financially broke. After deliberating for an hour, the jury returned a verdict of not guilty. To Oscar's dismay, the incident received little publicity, and he felt deserted by the Chicano leadership who had begun distancing themselves from him since his collaboration with Hunter S. Thompson. Following his acquittal, Oscar decided to leave the law career that he had worked so hard to attain. He announced his intention of becoming a professional writer instead. But around this time, Hunter was writing his own novel, a Romana Clef based upon two road trips he took to Las Vegas, Nevada with Oscar. The first trip was for the controversial article about Ruben Salazar, in which Oscar provided Hunter with background information about the poor relations between law enforcement and Chicano activists. Las Vegas was a locale within reasonable distance where they could talk together in privacy without people noticing a white man and a brown-skinned one hanging out together in a racially charged environment. After spending 36 drug and alcohol-fueled hours alone with Oscar in a hotel room, Hunter jotted down his recollections of that experience. A few weeks later, they recreated their 275-mile road trip, and subsequently, Hunter submitted his draft as a two-part publication for Rolling Stone magazine. When Oscar read the initial serialized version, which Hunter had titled Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, Oscar was furious. But make no mistake, he didn't mind being publicly portrayed as a quote-unquote drug-addled freak, as Hunter put it. No, his primary grievance was that although he is a major character in the novel, 
Hunter had changed his name and ethnicity. Oscar appears under the moniker of Dr. Gonzo. Gonzo is a nod to the term Gonzo journalism, a journalistic strategy of new journalism, essentially invented by Hunter S. Thompson himself, in which writers insert themselves and their own experiences into the stories. But much worse, Hunter repeatedly describes him as a quote-unquote 300-pound Samoan. Not only does he erase Oscar's ethnicity, he also exaggerates his weight at a time when Oscar was feeling particularly down on himself. Oscar threatened to sue both Hunter and Rolling Stone. He had received neither credit nor compensation for his large role, no pun intended, in the narrative. He initially demanded 50% of all of Hunter's royalties or other compensation for any future publication of the novel. He ultimately came to an agreement with Rolling Stone that in exchange for releasing all of his rights and interests in the novel, their own publisher, Straight Arrow Books, would release a work of Oscar's, the budding author. Oscar's first published novel, a Ramona Clef called Autobiography of a Brown Buffalo, was published in 1972. It was a sometimes exaggerated, highly entertaining version of his life story and evolution from his boyhood as a poor peach picker to a political activist and Robin Hood attorney for other low-income Chicanos. In a previous academic paper, I have argued that Oscar's apparent jokes about his appearance and weight in the book are actually indicative of an insecure self-image that he ordinarily tried to keep hidden through posturing of a carnivalesque nature. We learn a lot about Oscar through his storytelling. In the book, he emphasizes his many physical ailments, especially his ulcers, in sometimes nauseating detail. Because ulcers can sometimes be indicative of anxiety and stress, they underscore and symbolize the revulsion he feels at the dark nature of cultural politics stemming from national history. He thus analogizes himself as a brown buffalo, the animal eventually annihilated by white U.S. settlers. He sees himself as the endangered animal that represents native genocide. In the 1940s, one Los Angeles deputy sheriff compared, quote, Mexicans to a wild cat and whites to a domesticated cat, concluding that caging the wild cat was the only way it could be kept safely within society, unquote. This equation of Mexican-Americans and animals only differs from Acosta's version of becoming a buffalo in that he visualizes himself as running and escaping, while the white sheriff's vision involved trapping and caging Mexicans. Through Oscar's fictionalized novel, he could finally and openly explore and reveal the humiliation he'd endured from others, beginning with his own mother throughout his life. I believe that much of his personal drive and ambition stemmed, at least in part, from the long-term objection he felt. As Oscar worked on the book with the support of his wife, Socorro, they learned she was pregnant, and the couple moved to Mexico, planning to raise the baby there. However, her pregnancy ended in a stillbirth. A friend of Socorro's named Connie Suarez claimed that Oscar put the fetus in a jar and kept it over his fireplace, along with a shrine and a portrait that he drew, depicting the fetus as an Aztec god. Soon after this loss, Socorro petitioned for divorce. Through Oscar's publisher, she notified him that she was turning over all of his, quote, recent correspondence to her to the FBI, a startling proclamation, 
and that she did not want her name mentioned in his next book. Oscar took a pair of scissors to their wedding photo and removed her image. The FBI had, in fact, begun keeping a dossier on Oscar as part of their covert and illegal COINTELPRO project, which stands for Counterintelligence Program, due to his political activities. By this time, Oscar was raging against the machine. Rumors spread among people he knew that he was making Molotov cocktails. Aside from the political revolutionaries of the era, other Latinos were aghast. For decades, Mexican-Americans had adhered to respectability politics in order to gain acceptance in white America. They tried to keep their heads down by working hard, learning English, and avoiding tanning their skin. But Oscar was sick of trying in futility to be respectable, especially in Southern California, where indigenous Mexicans had once roamed on land that Mexico had once owned. Almost immediately after the release of Autobiography of a Brown Buffalo, Oscar entered into a second contract with Straight Arrow Books to write his second novel, The Revolt of the Cockroach People, in 1973. This was another Romana Clef that related key incidents in Oscar's role as a revolutionary Chicano leader, including, but not limited to, the East LA walkouts, the evolution of the Brown Berets, the death of Ruben Salazar, who he renamed Roland Zanzibar, and his run for LA Sheriff. Although his books received some positive literary reviews at the time, they did not sell well. Oscar's hopes and goals were once again dashed. It was especially bitter in light of Hunter's enormous success with Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Oscar was in desperate need of an income. He was also experiencing a version of what Giles Deleuze and Felix Guattari have termed deterritorialization. This is a phenomenon that I myself, as a mestiza, or person of mixed ethnicity, more derogatorily known as a pocha, have often experienced. Essentially, it's like living in a state of a psychical borderland, ultimately feeling neither Mexican nor entirely American. It's a feeling of displacement, of polarity, of hybridity, of not belonging. Because of Oscar's background, his academic interests, his ability to just barely infiltrate but not penetrate two cultures, he felt like he could never truly belong to either. And that's a lonely place. In January 1974, he decided to write a will while temporarily living in Los Angeles. He was only 38 years old, but it was not the first will he had drafted. This handwritten will revoked any previous bequeathments he had made to Socorro. Dorinda Moreno, a Chicana poet and activist, now in her 80s and with as much energy as ever, developed a close relationship with Oscar in his last months. I was able to interview Dorinda over the phone, but due to time preparation constraints, I did not record my talk with her despite her willingness to be recorded. I appreciate the time she took to speak with me. Dorinda is perhaps best known for her one-woman play, La Llorona, as well as for editing a Chicana literary anthology titled La Mujer, En Pie de Lucha y La Hora Es Ya. She has also been a university instructor and has founded a number of Chicana organizations to assist with higher education for this marginalized group. After reading Autobiography of a Brown Buffalo just after its release, Dorinda penned a response that she titled, Love Letter to Zeta. However, she did not know Oscar at that time. 
The two met following a poetry meeting featuring some prominent Chicano poets. Afterwards, they commenced a friendship-slash-love affair. Near the end of his known life, Oscar told Dorinda, You're the last person in the world who will receive me. I've burned all bridges. In his final known days, Oscar was living in San Francisco with Dorinda, according to her. Dorinda still retains in her possession, nearly 50 years later, a blue jacket that Oscar left at her house, along with a pair of his boots. Reminiscing on their relationship, she remarks, The romance was gone. He was a victim of his own victimized persona. I think a lot about it. In one of his frequent calls to his son Marco, an ex-wife, he promised them that he was about to make a lot of money and give them the lifestyle they deserved. He then met up with a drug dealer, known as Maintain Dave, who provided Oscar with a car and a gun. With those items, Oscar drove down to Mexico. In May or June of 1974, Oscar departed Mazatlan, a popular resort town in Mexico, on a friend's boat. He had apparently told people that he would be a passenger on a boatload of marijuana traveling north on the Mexican coast. Mazatlan is located on Mexico's central west coast and is a popular beach resort town. The state in which it's located, Sinaloa, neighbors the state of Durango, where Oscar's father grew up. During our phone conversation, Dorinda told me she believes that she was the last one to see Oscar alive prior to that boat trip. However, they were on separate paths in life. Dorinda was becoming a rising academic and organizer. At one point, she worked with one of Oscar's sisters at San Francisco State University. Oscar, on the other hand, had abandoned his law career, and his pitch of a third novel had been rejected by Rolling Stone. According to Dorinda, he had hepatitis and was looking for a quote-unquote nursemaid-slash-mom. I think this is a theme in Oscar's life. He was longing for an idealized maternal figure. She refused to be either idealized or his mother. Oscar sent her a postcard during that last trip to Mexico, urging her to join him. His last written words to her? Bring your typewriter and let's roll in the sand. Oscar's son, Marco, also believes he is the last known person to speak to his father. On May 15, 1974, Oscar placed a long-distance phone call to Marco, then 14 years old. Oscar told Marco that he was about to board a boat headed back to the United States and insinuated that he was carrying a large amount of cocaine on him, saying that he was, quote, swimming in white snow, unquote. Another source changes the wording slightly to white powder. When a worried Marco told Oscar he hoped he knew what he was doing, Oscar retorted that he hoped Marco knew what he was doing with his life. Dorinda has an alternate version of Oscar's last known activities. According to her, he did not disappear in Mexico, but off the coast of Panama in Central America, where he was shot in a boat while on a trip to visit the Cuna, an indigenous group of people from Panama and Colombia. Remember, he did have ties to Panama during his missionary-slash-evangelical days. Oscar's parents searched for him, but eventually had to give up. They died, never knowing what happened to him. Tons of rumors about Oscar's whereabouts, the whereabouts of his remains, and the circumstances of his disappearance have abounded over the decades. 
Some believe that he may have died of a cocaine overdose or while taking LSD. Other colorful theories are that he's been confined indefinitely in a Guatemalan jail, that he snuck off to Cuba or Nicaragua to collaborate with revolutionaries, or that the FBI, quote-unquote, made him disappear. Someone claimed he'd been spotted in Hawaii. Someone else said it was Miami, and yet another claimed he was in northern Mexico with drug runners. Still others point out that he had made enemies as a legal aid lawyer and could have been the victim of foul play, or that he could have suffered paranoia or a nervous breakdown, which led to his demise in some obscure location. In 1977, the offices of Rolling Stone magazine began receiving hospital bills for one Oscar Zeta Acosta. In 1980, Michael Maza, an Arizona Republic staff writer, reported that Oscar, quote, disappeared after souring on the law and drifting into a drug and gun smuggling netherworld. His remains have never been found, and his fate remains a mystery. He would like that no one knows what happened to him. Some think he may still be out there. In 1980, Universal Pictures released the film Where the Buffalo Roam, based on Hunter S. Thompson's Rolling Stone magazine obituary for Oscar, as well as several of his books. Acclaimed actor Bill Murray starred in the role of Hunter S. Thompson, while Peter Boyle of the TV show Everyone Loves Raymond, who is a white actor, portrayed Oscar. In the film, Oscar's name is changed to Carl Laszlo Esquire. Despite the presence of these two stellar actors, Where the Buffalo Roam was almost universally panned for a poor script and an inexperienced director, although Murray's performance was praised, as it should be. In 1998, Universal Pictures gave the pairing of Zeta Acosta and Thompson another shot in the film Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, based on Hunter S. Thompson's novel of the same name. Johnny Depp stars as Hunter, and Benicio Del Toro plays Oscar. Again, Oscar's name has been changed, this time as previously noted, to Dr. Gonzo. This version is on my personal list of all-time favorite films. I highly recommend you check it out, especially if you're into 90s psychedelic surrealism. Hunter S. Thompson, still hailed as one of the greatest writers of his generation, died by suicide in 2005 at age 67. Sokoto remarried 10 years after her divorce from Oscar and passed away from complications of hepatitis C in 1994. Oscar's only living offspring, Marco, followed in his father's footsteps, becoming a lawyer himself. His mother, Betty, remarried, is alive and well, and the two are close. I reached out to Marco when I started working on this episode a couple of years ago, but he did not respond. I did correspond with Oscar's niece, but she ultimately declined to participate in this project, as she is very protective of her uncle's image and legacy. I hope I have done it justice here. Zeta. What's in a name? In this case, the name represents the very first prominent Chicano attorney, in an era in which Chicano attorneys were virtually non-existent. It represents a man who contributed to the small but growing canon of Chicano literature. It also represents a man who, despite his flaws that included sexism and his own brand of racism, provided valuable services to lower-income people of color free of charge, 
even though that meant his own financial jeopardy. The story of Oscar's life and probable death are especially meaningful to me, as it was a basis of significant research for me in my master's program. The resultant paper that I wrote about his first novel ended up as a writing sample for my second round of graduate school, and I credit it and Oscar for assisting me with admittance into my PhD program. If you have any information about Oscar Zeta Acosta's disappearance, well, let me know. No law enforcement agency has ever opened an official inquiry or missing person investigation. If any part of this story sounds familiar, for instance, if you or anyone you know is suffering from depression, please don't wait. Many treatments are available, and this is a common condition, so there's no limit to the number of people who can empathize and want to help you. If you or anyone you know is contemplating suicide, please immediately call the Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-TALK, T-A-L-K, or text the word HOME, H-O-M-E, to the Crisis Text Line, or log on to suicidepreventionlifeline.org. That concludes today's blast into the offbeat past. If you've enjoyed this show, please subscribe, follow it on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Crime Scholar, and again, consider rating it with five stars so that others can find it within the vast expanses of the podcast universe. It is also available on YouTube at my channel, Crime Scholar, with closed captioning for the hearing impaired. Source information and recommended reading includes several Acosta biographies, notably Burton Moore's Love and Riot, Oscar Zeta Acosta, and the Great Mexican-American Revolt, and Elon Stavins' Bandido, Oscar Zeta Acosta and the Chicano Experience, as well as Philip Rodriguez's documentary, The Rise and Fall of the Brown Buffalo, my interview with Zeta friend and associate Dorinda Moreno, and my own theoretical essay titled The Mexican Situation, An Evolution of the Marked Body in the Autobiography of a Brown Buffalo. Full citations are listed on the website at crimescholar.wordpress.com. This podcast was written, produced, researched, narrated, and edited by me, Paris Brown. Artwork is by Natalie Ratner. You can find her at Natalie underscore Ratner on Instagram. Thank you for listening, and I'll be back with another story told from the Not-So-Ivory Tower.